Hi everyone, and welcome to Chewing the Fat. My guest this week is Talia Williams. Um, she works for First Union. She's been a union organizer for the Service and Food Workers Union, Engineering, Print, and Manufacturing Manufacturing Union, Manufacturers, Manufacturing. EPMU. One. EPMU. Yeah. And FinSec. What's FinSec? Financial Sector Union. Ah, cool. Yeah. She's done journalism and has travelled to Syria and Jordan, as well as travelled to Gaza as part of the Kiora Gaza Aid Convoy. How's it going? Very good, thank you. That's it? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's cool. All right, that's <laughs> it. <laughs> we'll say something, you know, like really insightful, insightful straight off the bat. That's all right. So um, how did you get into the trade union movement? Um, when I was about 14 or 15... I went to a community meeting which was about, I actually went along with my dad because he was going to drop me off at a party afterwards, so I didn't intend to go, um, but it was to combat a change to employment legislation that the national government was trying to introduce. Um, I ended up getting really interested in what was going on, ended up getting roped into being part of the campaign, and subsequently... Um, found myself um, on an, a traffic island in a dinghy with a sign saying, this is what holidays will look like if national government has their way. Um, this is Jenny Shipley. Um, I can't even remember who the, who the Prime Minister was at the time. It was Max Bradford, who was the employment relations yeah. person. Okay, yeah. yeah, And it was all about the changes he was trying to bring in. So, um, And there's just kind of... Just political kind of from then on in like um started um this group called the national youth network which was about educating high school students about you know their political surroundings and how to get active um and then um started working as you do need to work eventually yeah. um as a student part-time in a restaurant and in the restaurant i got treated really badly by um, the employer ended up joining my union and that was my first engagement for myself with trade unionism because before that it was always through my dad who was right. um, in the higher echelons of the um, Siemens. They called themselves the Siemens Union, but I think, it, yeah. Yeah, 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 I don't know why, yeah, Siemens. Um, and um, what ended up happening is I talked to some of my colleagues who were working at the same restaurant as me. We all found we were all getting the same abuse from the kitchen, um, which will be you know, um, it's commonplace, unfortunately, yeah. uh, like um, within the service sector. And um, I told them that I'd joined the union and thought that they should too and explained why. Um, and everybody joined. And we started talking quite openly about how we're all members and knew our rights and that kind of thing. And uh, subsequently, a lot of the abuse kind of subsided. And then I sort of thought, this is kind of cool and this more people should do this. It's good to assert, assert ourselves. What was that union? That was the service workers union. Right, okay, because are they still, because the, it's um, Action, what are they called, sorry, Unite Union. No, that's a separate union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a separate union, yeah, but yeah, they, yeah. what's the difference, because I know that they also cover service industry people, or is that different? Um, Unite Union cover fast food workers okay, predominantly. Different. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, um, but originally it was actually a, a beneficiaries union as well, but now it's just predominantly fast food uh, organising. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Yes. So what was the kind of um, change that happened in the kitchen? Because that's kind of a big one, eh? Like, mm. a lot of people do that work when they're going through studies and stuff. Yeah. And it yeah. happens all the time. Like, I used to work as a chef, and yeah. just, people get treated like shit constantly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, within that kind of realm, um, 
the, the, the only reason that it worked is because we all joined together and all decided to do something about it. If yeah. it just would have been me versus everybody else, I think I would have left. Yeah, because that would have been a bit grim. Um, yeah. yeah. Was it the actual owners or was it the kitchen? I'm just going to ask this later. Both. Right. Yeah. Were they small business owners, just out of curiosity? Um, I think so. Because yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I see this all the time. I don't know. It's, it's quite cool. I tell people you know, who work, oh, you know, I, it's just it's common now that, oh, yeah, they treat me like shit. It's like, well, we do yeah. a union. Well, I can't really be bothered, which we'll talk about later, actually. Mm, mm. So is there a political basis to your involvement with unions? Like, is there a sort of inherent political, I don't know, backbone to, to your involvement with, the, with unions? Um, well, I don't really see, like, I work for a trade union, but I don't really see trade unionism as a nine-to-five job for me um, because it sort of forms part of my, you know, wider beliefs, which is that the only way to change society is through organising workers and the unemployed um, against um, the current system, which is a capitalist system. So that's the primary reason that I'm involved in, in, in trade unionism. Not that I believe that being a trade union official will change that, workers will change that, right. um, you know, organising together, um, but this is the best method I see for changing what I see to be a, a reasonably not-so-good world. Yeah, but, so, but is, is there any political like, component to the trade union movement in the way that you see it, or in the way that you engage with trade unions? So like, you know, do you um, mean like parliamentary politics? Parliamentary politics, yeah, exactly. So, you know, things like policy, da 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 da, is there sort of an inherent part of what you do politics? Or is it really just trying to Um for some people it is. Um for me the politics of it is it's a method of organizing workers for a better society. Um because I don't believe in parliamentary politics. Um Why? when I first got in... Sorry. <laughs> I had to I had to forget that. <laughs> um so um, the main reason is that when I was younger, I really believed in the in the ability for Parliament to change things and just um, change the system through um, you know little incremental steps, um, things get, getting better and better. But through my life experience, I start to feel that the only way to change things um, permanently is through an overhaul of the capitalist system. So my my politics have changed from parliamentary politics. Um, to revolutionary politics. So it has, because I was going to ask that, from reformism to revolutionary mm. politics. Mm. Why is that? Why do you, I mean, so you see basically reformism is dead, it doesn't work, it hasn't achieved anything for, in like, for, you, for people who, for the working class? No, or? it does achieve things in incremental steps, yeah. but we're not going to change anything fundamentally about inequality or the gap between the rich and the poor without a change in the system. So what would that system be? I'm just gonna I'm gonna follow this line of mm. this really interesting mm. stuff. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, it's up to the people, really. But like, I mean, I guess I'd probably consider myself more like a um, an anarchist than a communist. So yeah, yeah, communism is more about you know the state having more control. And, uh, um, and I've found that that hasn't really worked um, in a lot of situations where where that has occurred. So I believe in more of a, um, an anarchist um, society, so people just organising in their communities in a more decentralised way. Mm. So deconstruct central politics in New Zealand. Well, does that work? Can, I mean, I don't know, I'm getting into like, this yeah. wasn't what I sent you. That's all right, that's all right. Is, is, right. It, is it okay? Yeah, 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 go on, go on. So would uh, anarchism in the way that you see it, which is a de, de, de decentralizing, decentralizing government politics. in New Zealand, yeah. Yeah. 
um, would that work in a global scale or would it work like how would how would that look for you um, it probably it has to start local yeah um, and, and hopefully it spreads to global but you can't just impose a, a revolution on the world um, it, has, it sort of happens country by country and I think we can be inspired by places like Greece um, but I don't think anyone's got a hundred percent right okay I'm gonna come back to that yeah, 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 I yeah, have, yeah this is this topic comes up every almost every week mm. it's really fascinating and it mm. was it was like people used to talk about it's sort of like getting more and more people feeling more and more open to talking about things like oh, that was sort of things like um democratic socialism and then you know the other person would say oh yeah like just overt uh, communism and now people are really stalking uh, talking about anarchism mm. and anarchism is like this big thing but anyway mm. like yeah 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 my okay, show last night yeah but anyway yeah, yeah, um yep. so what just talk about government policy um how do you rate the current government policy on unions? Um, I think that they're trying to get rid of unions. That's what their policy is. Um, and that was what their policy, the national government's policy was through the 90s. And they were quite effective in achieving that through the Employment and Contracts Act in the 90s. Yep. So our job is going to be to stop them from doing such an awful job again. Um, so what they did in the, in the 90s is basically made, um, like, removed the word union from employment legislation overnight um, and made it um, illegal for union organisers like myself to go into workplaces and talk to people about you know, joining the union or organising. Yeah. Um, and also, um, we, we used to have a situation whereby everybody's terms and conditions were determined um, centrally yeah. um, by, by the government and arbitrators and, and the unions. Um, and then overnight, that became something that had to be worked out workplace to workplace. Yep. So you can imagine the effect that that had on resourcing of unions. Yep. Um, so all of a sudden, you went from having to negotiate like you know three collective agreements a year to having to no negotiate hundreds right. upon hundreds of collective agreements, um, which was impossible. And therefore, collective agreements expired and ceased to exist. And overnight people were on individual employment agreements. And I think that ultimately that's what this government is heading towards as well, but they're having to move a little bit more carefully because I think people are a little bit more wise to it. Yes, yeah, so this, I know, this, where, oh, excuse you might know the, the, well, you should know, not should, but the, at one point in New Zealand's employment relations law, it was compulsory to be part of a union, yes. is that correct? Like, yes, when it was, was. When was that? I think that was sort of like, uh, I think that um, ended in, in the mid-80s. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that also um, affected um, unions. But actually, I think unions could learn from that as well because overnight, they, again, they were in that situation whereby they couldn't just, um, you know, um, compel people to join a union but had to describe to them why they should. Right. Um, so um, while compulsory unionism was good because it meant there was more people in unions and therefore terms and conditions were better and pay was better, right. um, also it meant people didn't understand why they were in unions. Yeah. Whereas now they have to understand because they have to be approached and individually sign up to it and, want, and commit to it. So in that respect, uh, I mean I'm going to jump a little bit f uh, further here, but in that respect, are the people that you talk to about become, or joining unions, are they more receptive? because they don't know what it might be, rather than just say, oh, I am part of a union and that doesn't mean anything for me. Does that make sense? Um, no, sorry. So basically, like, 
the people that you speak to mm. about joining a union nowadays, are they, yep. yeah, nowadays yep. are they more receptive to doing it or are they more aware of what unions are and, and do as opposed to say before I mean I don't know like mm. say in your, in your father's generation yeah, where they might have just said oh well unions are just unions and, and you know you just that's just part of work Does yeah, that make sense? yeah yeah but that's, well, that was good in a way yeah, yeah, that yeah. it was just a normal part of work and you signed up and you were you were strong in your workplace you know like you had um you had power at yeah. work um, in a way that we can't even imagine nowadays. Um, so pe perhaps my answer to that would be that, no, I don't think that people are more favourable or understand more. Right. Um, but once they do sign up, um, they've got to have more of an understanding of what it is versus in the 80s. Right, 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 right. Mm. So, like, could you go through any, like, do you have any specific sort of positive or negative policy changes or policies that this current government's, like, come in? So one of the things that they're introducing is um, the ability for the employer to walk away from collective bargaining. Um, and that's quite damaging um, because that means that an employer can make a decision at that point to disestablish a collective agreement and put everybody onto individual contracts, which means less power right. for workers. Um, so that's one of the things that we're, we're battling at the moment. Um, I think possibly later on this year that will come into play, but it's not into play right now. So how do you battle those sort of things? How do you... Um, I guess part of it is through political lobbying, and part of it is through trying to prepare members for what landscape might look like at that point. Um, right. So um, there may, may need to be a situation where we're organising less within the workplace because unions are no longer sanctioned within the workplace by the employer, but more um, outside outside of the workplace so meetings outside of work and involving it more in your normal life okay mm. that's interesting mm. so generally it seems as though the last say since the the change of that um compulsory unionization of, of the workers to now mm. do you feel as though the union movement is reactionary um, so that we can only really respond to bad yep. things that happen. Yeah, with yeah, government yeah, definitely, policy. definitely. So how do you how do you overcome that? Um, well, it remains to be seen, but I guess the main thing is that we need to involve the workers um, that we do have, um, and I, I don't think we do a good job of that at the moment. Um, like, say, for example, um, casualised workers, um, your yeah, precarious workers. Yeah. Um, low contracted hours workers. I don't think we do a good job of organising and involving them. Migrant workers, um, the new type of workforce that we now are faced with, yeah. we need to change our organising to meet their needs right. rather than requiring them to come to us. Right, right, right. Yeah. How would you do that? Um, so just to give an example, like um, the way that if I was to go into a workplace nowadays, um, and run a union meeting, I might run, say, you know, just a couple during the day, you know, a claims meeting during the day at a particular workplace. Um, but that doesn't take into account the fact that there are some people who work eight hours during a week, not because they want to, but because that's what the employer puts onto them. Um, and um, thereby me holding only two union meetings in a week rather than one every day of the week or one every shift or yeah. whatever it is, yeah. that will decide whether they're included or excluded from what we're doing and what we're trying to achieve, um, you know, what we're trying to improve at work. So would you change the nature of the meetings and put it outside the hours of work? Like I'm just thinking, mm. yeah, because everyone's, mm. you know, there's a shifting, there's a shifting um, workforce, as you say, um, and 
people's shifts change week to week, for example. So, you know, you, it's always sort mm. of like a moving target yes. with regards to these, these mm. workers. Do you, I mean, because you were saying something about like social, not, okay, socializing it in the way that like meetings have become more social things where yep. like-minded people who have similar values yeah. come yep. together as opposed to just their work. Yes, yes. With that, I mean, I don't know, like... Yeah, yeah. I was talking about that with a colleague today, and we we think that we're going to have to move more towards that idea of things. And one of the other things, too, is that people can sometimes feel quite intimidated to attend union meetings within work time. They know their employer knows that they're going to that. They're leaving their colleagues behind to do... Work. Maybe they're understaffed, for example, and they're leaving their colleagues behind to do all of the rest of the work. They feel guilty. Yeah. Maybe something like removing it to after hours, you know, um, will mean higher attendance and more involvement and people to feel freer to say the things that they want to say without worrying that, you know, the employer's listening. So, are unions losing their standing in New Zealand? Generally um, speaking, generally speaking, and it's kind of a broad question, mm, tough one to. Um, are they losing their standing? I think that we have low unionisation rates at the moment, so it's not about, I mean, do you support unions or do you not? It's about whether you're a union member or not. And in terms of union membership, um, the numbers are, are pretty low um, at the moment. They're quite, still quite high in the public sector, but in the private sector they're pretty low. And I think partly that's to do with, I don't think we've necessarily risen to the challenge of the new workforce and changing our organising to meet that. Um, so yeah, I think we've got a lot of work to do. But unions are still extremely relevant. I mean, so long as you have exploitation in the workplace, then unions are relevant. I think Unite led the way recently with the Zero Hours contract win yep. um, to show how important it is that we remain organised. Um, for change and that it's still relevant in you know um, in new society, um, but more of that kind of stuff has to happen, I think. Yeah, well, they got massive publicity and some big wins. So you mm. know, any, I mean, I was reading an, an article in the Herald and they were saying this sort of opinion piece that you know even people on the right wing sort of like political spectrum are going, you know, actually nobody really likes um, zero hour contracts, and these guys have done a great job of trying to uh, you know of 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 overcoming that whole thing. So, yeah. There's some good publicity, but I guess I'm just wondering how you do find or how you do connect with those people mm. who are, you know, like if, if for example, those are pretty extreme circumstances, the mm. zero contracts, but mm. say someone's just like sort of every so often getting, you know, exploited or whatever, and they're not that compelled to do it. How do you reach those people? Mm, mm. It's kind of a tough one, right? Yeah, it is. Um, but I think you have to put um, faces in front of those people who reflect those people. Um, right. So one of the things, for example, um, in some of the workplaces in which I organise is um, that they're um, like a majority Indian workforce or new migrant workforce. Yeah. And um, we... Um, Recently, I actually had um, a meeting of union delegates and just looked around the room and realised that everyone in the room was white. Right. Um, and it's like, no wonder those people are disconnected from the union. Right. Um, so I think that's a, a massive issue um, as well. Is It's difficult because union delegates are elected because we're trying to be democratic, right? We're trying to elect people, um, you know, so workers decide who it is that's going to represent them. But what if they keep deciding... For old white people to represent them, yeah, yeah, how are we yeah. going to get anything changed? You well, know, there's a democracy, so, man, absolutely. Yeah. So you kind of need to 
think about what that means and how we might need to change things, you know, and maybe democracy isn't working in that particular situation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that, but... It's a really tough one, eh? Mm. Mm. So, I was speaking to a few buddies, I won't name names, but they were saying, and I was arguing for unions and unionizing the workforce, and they were arguing not, obviously. Yeah. And one of the reasons that they said they wouldn't is because they wield too much power and can um, take that power for granted and can, in, and can in effect, end up exploiting the workers that they're supposed to represent mm. by, you know... This is their. This is what they think. Um, but like, um, they get paid to unionize the workforce. They get jobs out of it. So there's some sort of inherent um, conflict of interest, basically. Like, mm. What would you say to something like that? Mm, that's very interesting. I would want to ask that person what situation in particular they're talking about where unions are wielding too much power because I'd love to see that. Um, unfortunately that, that generally is not the case at the moment. I mean perhaps under compulsory unionism um, you know that was occurring perhaps a bit more in a way that was unreasonable. Um, I don't know but I, I don't see that nowadays at all. Um, I see very valid um, reasons for workers taking industrial action um, and industrial action is voted on, uh, not imposed by union officials like myself. I mean, in regards to the, the conflict of interest of someone, someone like myself getting a job out of what I'm doing, um, sometimes when I'm recruiting people into the union they ask whether I'm getting a commission or a bonus um, based on whether they join or not, and the answer is absolutely not. Yeah. I really hope to one day organise myself out of a job that would be ideal, you know, like if you're thinking about it politically in terms of the border scheme of what you're trying to do and trying to achieve, yeah. then I would like to organize myself out of a job. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, there's just, it seems that if you, if I speak to some people on the street and there is some closet anti-unionist sentiment mm, mm. and I can't put it down, it's like, mm. it's like, um, it's like, well, you know, the, the recent elections in, in the UK and they're talking about shy Tories, for example. Yeah. Um, that whole thing. Do you, mm. Does that ever, have you ever come across that? I don't really know what you mean. So basically, well, the, the idea, okay, so just really, really, really quickly, they were saying that um, when they were doing the, the opinion, this is in the UK election, when they are doing these opinion polls of like who's going to win, it was basically neck and neck, neck, like really, really even. And then what happened in the last day is that the, the, the Tories came out and smashed them. Yeah. Basically, the smash labor. Yeah. And they were saying that during the polls, maybe this uh, an element might be that people feel um, ashamed mm. to <clears throat> overtly express themselves as Tory. Mm. Yet they go out and do that later on, like. Mm. And some of the people that I've spoken to, like, if you dig right quite deep, yeah. they'll tell you that I don't know about unions. Eh? I'm just yeah. a little bit sort of weird about it. Yeah. I mean. These, their, 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 um, their sentiments aren't articulate, mm. but they, there is still, there is still mm. out there. I don't know. Mm. Like, I just sort of throw it in there. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, probably um, the most common objection to joining, when I'm going around trying to talk to people about joining our union, would be, um, why would I pay for something that I'm going to get for free anyway? Because whatever you guys negotiate as the union gets passed on to non-members, and right. I'll get it anyway. And that's true. But equally, if we get nothing because we've got a low percentage of um, union density, they will get nothing as well. Yeah. Or if we lose items, you know, like critical things like leave or, you know, pay, because we've got low union density, they'll lose those, those conditions as well. well. Okay, so here's another question. Just 
how would you respond to a question like this? Okay, so for example, in New Zealand, a really high percentage of um, workers work for small to medium enterprises, mm. and how unionism could affect their job opportunities within working for those for those businesses. I.e., if you push up, say, you know, if you try to lobby like pushing up the the minimum wage, I might yeah. lose my job or something like that. Like, does that ever does, has anybody ever come to you with that sort of worry or concern? Yeah, definitely. Um, and and sometimes um, and sometimes it's valid as well. Like, we have had some situations where people have um, organised within their workplace and, and um, you know suffered as a result. Um, but we always take that up, like um, you know, and challenge that legally because it's it's illegal to discriminate on, on Can someone you give based an on your membership. Um, like really broad, if you. Mm. <clears throat> um, there was one um, company, but I won't name the company. Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, where um, we started to talk to certain people within that company who had come to us expressing concern about the fact that they were um, being made to sell debt when they didn't feel comfortable selling selling debt, right. so selling loans and that kind of thing. Right. Um, they came to us about that, concerned about it. Um, and um, wanting to join the union and, and create some change within their workplace. And their employer, um, once it was identified who those people were, that employer um, sacked them for uh, other reasons. So it would say things like the bad performers or whatever it is, or create excuses or reasons. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That so is... that type of thing is alive and well in this country, unfortunately. That's brutal. Yes. Um, and we do battle that, but we don't lie to people as well. Employers often won't like it because you're, you're cutting into their profit margins. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They're not going to be jumping for joy. No. Um, but it's a, it's an important struggle. Yeah. So, um, how do you feel about the precariat movement? The movement, you know, towards a precarious employee. So when you say that, are you asking me? The new class of, of oh, workers right. who, rather than like a resistance movement, you're no, talking no, about like yeah, a, the, the precariat, like the you know you got the bourgeoisie and the, the mm, proletariat. Mm. You know, because you're talking earlier really about like things like communism, but yeah. this new sort of class of people, which is yeah. pre precariat. Yeah. Like, what do you think about that the whole thing? Well, I mean, I think it comes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is um, the existence of that class means that we need to organise mm. in different ways. Um, but I, I do think as well we may need to, in part, move away from the old-style way, way of thinking, which is that everybody wants full-time employment. Um, because when I talk to like my dad's generation, they're sort of like everybody, you know, all these casualised people, they just want all full, full employment. And that is the case in a lot of situations. But there are some situations where people are, would prefer to have a, a different kind of lifestyle, um, you know, from that. Um, so the question then becomes what, what it is that they would want to see to make their work life, you know, to improve their kind of work life. Well, I don't quite know what that is. Yeah, so I mean, like, what, what, like, amongst the, the conversations you've had with other union organisers, mm. have you come up with any solutions to that? Because it is, mm. I mean, mm. now, I mean, the, there is this massive, massive um, demographic of people, people my age, yeah, who um, have left school, mm. left tertiary education, uh, finding bits and pieces like for example I'm a filmmaker right mm. and that's what you do like you you're a freelancer there's mm. a lot of people like that mm. there's no um, there's no guarantee of income mm. there's you you you're basically forced to be like really mobile mm. i.e if there's no work here then you need to piss off and go somewhere else like yeah how do you have you had those sort of conversations with your colleagues about how you mm. engage those people 
Um, I wouldn't know what to say to that particular situation that you're talking about. If oh, that's something yeah, that you like, would, like, if that's the way kind of like that your particular industry operates, I guess one of the things that I find is people in that situation generally are not opposed to the idea of having predictable working hours. Yeah. So they may not want <clears throat> full-time working hours, but they want to know week to week what hours they're going to work so they can book everything else around it and juggle their lives around it, right. whether that's childcare or whatever it is. Right, right, right. And know what the income's going to be. So that's like one of the things that we're trying to get in a lot of our collective agreements nowadays is um, some kind of regularity and predictability of, of working hours for people, even if it's not a full 40-hour week. Yeah. I'm just thinking about casualized workforce, man. There's just mm. so many people out there, mm. who, and it's just it's increasing. And mm. you know, what was once um, the service industry when I first started cooking, for example, was like, yeah, you always got, you know, it was full time work. Yeah. But now it's like, oh wait, you know, actually, we're just going to put you on a casual contract. Yeah. And um, you will just use you when you need it. But mm. I'm just thinking, like, how on earth you would try and mm. unionize those people because mm. it's so difficult. Yeah. Moving target, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, globally, what do you think about this this movement in, in regards to like how I'm going to talk bigger picture than just unions. Mm. So politically, socially, um, economically, how do you think the movement of turning uh, of the the workforce becoming casualized? How do you think it's going to like what what are the sort of um, what are the implications of that and the way that you see it? Um, Particularly in the Western world. I don't quite know how to answer that. Um, are, are you asking about whether it's something that will just continue? Or yeah, well, is so, it something we can do about it? Yeah, or? I mean, so you, you, the whole thing about, like, the whole, in, insofar as where I see unions, it's sort of this, um, it's another structure to assist and aid mm. people to live better lives. Mm, that's in a, right. In a really sort of, like, simplistic way of looking at it. Yeah. Now, if... This structure is no longer relevant. Mm, mm. What happens to these people? Mm, mm. And I'm talking. Um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. So moving beyond the idea yeah. of like trade, uh, yeah. trade unionism. Yeah. But I'm talking about yeah. wider societal things. Yeah. Like, yeah. What, what do you have, what, do you have any like, thoughts about that? Like, what are the implications of this? Um, the the only way for people to if they're unhappy, if people are unhappy about the way they're being treated at work, the only way to solve that is to collectivize. So you don't have to collectivise through a union, but you do need to collectivise. And there have been examples of that. There was a situation recently out in, um, at the Auckland airport where there was a group of taxi drivers who went on hunger strikes That's like right. last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, they weren't members of a union. Um, they all just banded together and decided that enough was enough about how they were being treated by the airport and decided to take collective action. Um, and they got a good result at the end of it. Um, you know, it's arguable whether hunger strikes is the best way to go about things or whatever. That's fine, but the point was that they decided they figured out their way to collectivise, and and that worked for them. Right. So I think that can happen anywhere. Um, like um, you know, my partner's a chef, and when he was working as a chef, he was working crazy hours, getting called at random. You know, we'd just be about to go and do something, and then get called. You've got to come in right now. Yeah. You know, the only way that um him and the people at his work and his workplace would have been able to deal with that or to change that would be to get together and decide collectively what they were going to do, how they were going to respond to that. Right. I don't, I don't, see, any, I don't see how an, a union in that situation would have the resource to go to every you know, um, you know, uh, restaurant across Ponsonby to try and talk to everybody about joining. 
Yeah, it's kind of interesting because mm. I'm just having a, I'm just having a think, a thought here that, you know, I mean, like the idea of collectivizing the workforce and then moving together as a whole, as opposed to like little individual parts, is really important. Mm. But how would you? I'm just like just talking here. Mm. But how mm. would you express that to people? Say, mm. oh, if you don't like it, what you should do is you should grip, you should get together with the rest of your work buddies, mm. and then just say no to it. Because mm. that would work. Well, yeah. that's what happens, right? Yeah. This needs to be some kind of public conscientizing about the situation. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know what that looks like, but yes. Because it's a, it's a changing that, that it's a changing world, though. Way like you know. Mm. Back in the day where manufacturing was actually a thing in New Zealand, um, before, you know, the service sector just went through and, like, smashed everything before, you know, like, the, the massive reforms of the 1980s and 1990s, um, it was a different world back then, and mm. things are changing. And I don't know, like, I think mm. that, for me, there's a sense of, I'm saying really broadly here, but like mm. an individu individualization of the self within people who are younger, mm. I think. People mm. who are older. I mean, mm. like the idea of um, social liberalism, for example. Yeah. Like I stand for what I stand for and I can be whoever I want to be. Yeah. Like there's something inherently individualistic about that. Yeah. And so what happens sometimes, I think, mm. is that people disregard the, the collective mm. Collectivization of things like the workforce and how banding together can actually be a really positive thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think collectivizing can be a very selfish thing. You can do it purely because it doesn't fit in with your life, you yeah. know, to be called at the last minute and told you've got to come into work when you had, you know, other social engagements planned or things that matter to you. So, you know, if the way to resolve that is through collectivizing, you know, it could be inherently be a selfish and think something that works for you as an individual. Yeah, yeah, you know? totally. <laughs> So I want to pull back a little bit. I I want to talk to you about Gaza and that yeah, yeah, yeah. that's absolutely fascinating. But I want to I want to pull back because mm. I just I want to I want to get this big wide um, I don't know what do you call it like a this mishmash of of ideas about like broken system. It's yep. just it was funny because the listeners will you know the listeners will know that this is. Um, Last night, or my last podcast, my last radio show, I was talking about how lots of people are now starting to talk about anarchism. And okay, why is it that you, like your father, mm. for example, mm. would he be pro anarchy? Um, he's a communist. Okay, <laughs> are they the same thing in your opinion, or are they slightly different? Or what's the difference between communism and anarchy? Um, it, it's basically um. With communism, it's based in um, more more based in the state. So you still got faith in government and a yeah. centralized government system yeah. to run things the way that, that you want to. So less kind of private ownership or no private ownership. No private ownership. All yeah. all run um, by the government. Yeah. Um, so you do need to have quite a lot of faith in parliamentary politics, in my view. Right. For that to work well. And so you're talking um, but about, but it works. It. it works well in terms of accountability, of accountability, because I don't think that private ownership means um, little to no accountability to the average person, whereas I think communism means there's accountability to the you know, the government must do as the people want, or there will be you know, the, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But with regards to you though, you are like just completely decentralised government, make it much more locally. Um, Make local governance yeah. more of a more of a thing. Yeah. So how would that look like in New, What would that look like in New Zealand? Um. 
I think one of the things as well with anarchism is that people sort of say, well, oh, you don't like the way capitalism works. You tell me how your things no, go. No, 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 I mean, the, what I believe in is is true democracy, which right. is people coming together um, and making decisions about how to run society, um, not in the form of you know um, putting the, their faith into a government model of a government or representative, but right. in themselves, a direct d- democracy. Direct democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is libertarianism in there somewhere? Um. Well, it depends who you talk to, but yeah, for you though, for you though, for you, because well, these yeah, things yeah. are really, really yeah. close. It's like it's quite, it's. I love talking about this because libertarianism like, is more sort of like about, um, you know, more freedom for corporations. The libertarians that I've talked to have talked about just like ultimate kind of market freedom. Yeah, and see that that I don't think works for the people. So I don't agree with libertarianism. And so far as it's been explained to me by people who are what I would call right wing libertarians. Yeah, yeah. So they're like I know that. Um, there is this new sort of movement which are far left libertarians, mm. which are basically talking about what you're talking about, i.e., yeah. complete decentralization, but yeah. also you're free to do exactly what you want. Mm. And that's where the, anarchi- the, the anarchist sort of viewpoint comes in. So, yeah. in an anarchistic um, community or society where there is like local government and all, but you're able to do exactly what you want. So, that means. Um, you don't have to pay tax, mm. and that's where the, the you know what I mean. Like that's where the anarchy, the anarchy, mm. anarchy comes in. Yeah. Because like, I don't know. What do you feel about that? Like, how mm. do you feel about that that whole thing? I don't have to pay tax. I don't want to. Yeah, um, yeah. That's only going to work if we actually have some kind of anarchist society. Yeah. Um. So currently, all that's doing is just drawing away from the common good. That's right. Yeah. But in but in an anarchist society, how would you feel about somebody saying? Or like a, a core value of your community to say, all right, you can actually do whatever it is that you want to do within reasons, mm. so long as you don't hurt anybody else. Sort of thing. Mm. Mm. Like, how would you feel about that? Um, the, the main principle for me is look, is that you know, from each according to their skill and to each according to their need, and as right. long as those things are met, then I think we're doing well. Fascinating stuff. <laughs> no, I, just, I love this conversation. It's a conversation that. I had, a, I had a couple of beers the other night and I was talking with my buddy and I got straight into it. He just sort of went, his eyes rolled to the back of his head and he sort of like curled up in a ball. It's like, uh. But I was thinking about the, uh, this idea and that local governance, say a village of a thousand people, mm. everyone sort of pitches in whatever you write. And then I was like, okay, that would work, but this would be fail. This would work, yeah. but like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, no one knows. It's yeah, no one knows. Yeah, That's wonderful. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving on. Yes. So, you've been to Palestine. Mm-hmm. What's Gaza like? Um, Gaza was amazing. So, I went there in 2012. Um, what can I say about Gaza? Um, what would you like to know about Gaza? Um, how dense is it? Because mm. it's basically a prison. Yes. So what's the standard of living like? Yeah, because it's basically a prison. Yeah, and what are the people like? Because it's basically a prison. Yeah. So um, I think um, from memory, there's around four million people. So the size of New Zealand squashed into the space of less than Auckland. Yeah. So it's very, very packed in. Yeah. Um. 
What are the people like? The people there have endured what no one could possibly imagine um, after um, occupation, military occupation um, since 1948, after numerous invasions, after the more recent um, blockade where Israel. Uh, so it's been about seven or eight years now. That's obscene. Where they won't let um, <clears throat> items in or out of of Gaza, um, you know, it, it, as you say, creating in effect a, a prison um, where people can't escape, but yet are bombarded from above, and um, have no means to run their own economy. Right. Um, so it's it's just, it's creating an impossible situation for people to exist. Yet people exist. And flourish and rebuild yeah, so that's, and all that that's, kind of stuff. That's, that's so, right. Yeah. So, like, what are the people like? I mean, you, 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 you're in this. I, I mean, I don't even know what it would be like. I mean, I've been to West Bank. Yep. But it, Gaza is another story entirely. Right. But what are the people like? Mm, mm. Are they nice people? Are they friendly? Are they? Are they? Or are they sort of pissed off? Yeah. Um, well, everybody was extremely polite and loving. Um, Insuitably pissed off, yeah. um, but not in a visible way um, to me because they were just, you know, stoked to have some solidarity from, from people from the other side of the world. Yeah, so you went in with the Kiora um, a Gaza A convoy. Mm. How did the mm. whole thing happen? Because there was a few protests last year and mm. Mm. you mm. got some cash together and then you went mm. over to Palestine. Mm. So basically what happened is, I think it was in 2010, there was the first Kyoto Gaza convoy. Um, and at the time I was in Venezuela, um, doing something completely different. And I remember seeing the media around it and feeling that that was the most proud I was to be a New Zealander, um, to see um, <clears throat> that convoy of people take aid to Gaza. Um, and, and show solidarity with the Gazan people. And I was just like, that is basically the coolest thing I've seen. That's what I want to be part of, you right, know. Right. Um, that's what I believe in. And so when I came back to New Zealand, um, I did a bit of work doing fundraising and that kind of thing for Kyoto Gaza and then ultimately put my hand up to go over there and um, experience it, um, mainly so that I could come back and continue the work that I was doing, but be able to say to people, I was there, this is what happens, this is what people said to me. Um, how did you get into Gaza? Um, so we, we went in a plane to Egypt and went through Rafa Crossing. Right. Um, and um, around that same time, there was um, the Arab Spring yeah. was occurring, and um, um, they had the Muslim Brotherhood in, in power. Yeah. Um, and they had temporarily opened the Rafa crossing um, in a way, in a, almost in an unprecedented way. Yep. So we were able to get access where perhaps previously people would have to go around other other means and it would be more di difficult. Yeah, because I know that since Sisi has come to power, mm. it's completely blocked mm. now. So mm. there's no way in or out, out of Gaza. Yeah, yeah. Unless yeah. you're like, I don't know, I don't even know how, well, like, how to some random UN convoy or something like this. Mm. Um, did you did you meet many of the local people and did you get involved? Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely, how, definitely. How'd that work out? 
what are your experiences? Um, so probably the most striking experience is that there were no households in Gaza who did not have a family member who, who had died directly or indirectly as a result of, um, of the blockade and the invasions. So every single household is affected directly um, with a family member. And I think that's really hard for people to get their head around um, because you have people who will say, you know, oh, well, you know, why do they have this you know, violent response, these rockets, or whatever it is, I think people do need to consider what that might look like in their own neighbourhoods if every single household on their street had yep. had a family member die, um, how they might respond, and whether it would just be like, oh, ho-hum, I guess life goes on, when needlessly people were dying. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And not only that, like, the Israelis are completely strangling them, mm. so you've got to fight back. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, so, for example, like I, I um, visited the university there, and they had just rebuilt that university after um, 2010 um, invasion. Yeah. Where the university had been targeted, and everyone there was so pro-education, and all the young people there were like, "All we want to do is learn." Um, and visited the university there, and just the la the, pre the last invasion. I can't even keep count because there's so many of them. But the last one that occurred that university was bombed again. So now they've got to start rebuilding that university again. That university gave a path for people to pursue, if you like, a more non-violent existence, if that's what the world really wants. Yeah. But yet, the university was bombed yet again. So places them un unemployed, yeah. no ability to be, to be educated, um, and just feeling really angry about what's happening to them. So how do you feel about the boycott, divest and sanction movement? Um, I think that the, the BDS movement is the best way to um, move Israel from its current position um, because the UN doesn't seem to be working um, and that puts economic pressure on Israel. So, okay, I just, I'm going to say something. Mm. I listened to... Um, Wallace Chapman on Radio New Zealand um, a little while ago, and mm. he had this. He had an interview with an author. Well, he's a journalist called Amira Haas, and she's, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So she said it was really interesting because he asked that question I just asked you, mm. and she said something along the lines of, "I oh, know wait, She goes, "It wouldn't do much. All it would do is it was it would bring a little bit of publicity to it, but like ultimately, um, they are dealing." Um, one of the one of Israel's major exports is arms and defense, mm. and they're they're selling that to all around the world, right? Really, right. So yep. you're talking about a few minor companies that might get minor. Um, not much effect would happen to those people. So, like, mm. I don't know. What are your thoughts mm. about that? Um, I think that that's an interesting perspective um, from an Israeli academic. Mm. Yeah. But um, the call for BDS has come from Palestinian civil society. Right. And I'm more inclined to listen to what they think is the best nonviolent way to achieve change. <laughs> Go listen to the people. That's not, right. Not, 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 not the yeah, that, then, I think we should criticise things as well. We shouldn't just always just accept, you know, whatever comes our way. But I think, yeah, I think it's important to recognise the, you know, sovereignty. Well, I'm going to ask you this as well. So have you been... Have you heard about the recent developments within with the Israeli government? Um, They've no. just formed a government, like mm. the most right-wing government in, in basically like living memory. Mm. Um, some of their key portfolios and cabinet are held by like basically settler parties. What do you think is going to happen in the future? Um, 
I think that um, we need to look beyond um, Israeli politics and look to what's going to affect change in Palestine and end the occupation, which is through international pressure, and that's the BDS campaign, um, or whatever other means we have available so, to us. But how do you do that? Because I know, like, New Zealand just sits their ass and mm. doesn't do anything. They don't actively engage in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in any way, really, apart from, like, throughout the odd statement from um, saying, oh, wait, this is this is bad, you mm. know, but they don't actually do anything about it. And, like, mm. you know, there, there are people on the ground, like yourself, mm. who are actively trying to engage people and tell them about the story, but ultimately nothing comes from it. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, I think that the... Um, the BDS campaign has had a lot of um, a lot of success internationally. Right. Um, so we may not see that as visibly from New Zealand, but there have been um, there has been a lot of divestment. Do you mean like Scarlett Johansson and her like Soda Stream debacle? <laughs> um, th there's been a lot of divestment as a result of the BDS campaign, right, like okay. from from the Israeli economy, and um, and they do. The government there seems to get very up in arms about it, which goes to show you that it must be effective. Because there's a lot of things um, which they don't really mind about. Um, okay. Probably well, I mean, I guess I'm I'm still I don't know. I, I'm 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 skeptical of just the BDF. So, like for example, the settlers are now there more than ever. Yeah. They don't care. Yeah. If there's if there's if the companies in, in Palestine or whatever, uh, if the BDS movement's happening, mm. they're going to settle because of ideological reasons and only ideological reasons. I don't mm. give a shit about anybody else. Mm. Um, how do you stop the settlers? Because mm. the Palestinians are getting kicked out of their own land. The settlers are coming through. How do you stop that? Mm. Mm. Well, I guess do I've... you think force, basically, do you need to think force needs to come into this rather than just some sort of soft, I don't know, economic sanction? Mm. Un, you know, like, casual economic sanction? Mm. Well, it is interesting about where like America and the international community decide to use force and where they don't yeah. um, and they never decide to use force in Israel to enforce you know um, UN, the UN um, clauses which um, Israel regu regularly breaches yeah. <clears throat> um, again from the international community perspective I think the best form is through um, boycotts and through divestment and, and sanctions um, but internally from the people of Palestine, they will decide how they will resist. And they'll continue to resist because there's no alternative for them. They've got nothing to lose. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. But, it's, I mean, this is the thing, is that... I don't know, I'm just looking at this conflict. Like, I'm going to say my piece and I'm going to ask you if, like, what you think about this, but yeah, I just see it as... It's just a slow, very, very slow death yeah. of, of Palestine. And, yeah. I, like you said, yeah. you've been... I read that you've been to Jordan as well. I've mm. been to Jordan too. Mm. And in Amman, most mm. of the people you meet there are actually Palestinian refugees. refugees. Yeah. Like they've the been diaspora, there. Yeah. yeah they've mm. been there for, for, for decades now. Mm. And that's just slowly happening. And, you know, when I was in, in West Bank, they can't leave through Tel Aviv. They can't mm. fly out. They've mm. got to go to Jordan, you mm. know. And, like, they're basically completely shut off. Yeah. I don't see this as really ending well for the Palestinians. Mm. And I, you know, like, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that? Um, I just feel like I don't have the right to be pessimistic about it right. when people in Gaza that yeah. I met yeah. 
after everything they've been through, still are optimistic, and, and they have to be, because you've got to go through the next day, right? And yeah. you've got to keep going and fighting it. Um, they remain optimistic, so I don't feel like I've, I've got the right to, to, to say anything, but I think we can do it. If they can do it, we can, we can support them. But, so, okay, so it's just, it's basically an ideological, um, unwavering support for the Palestinian people. Regardless of what happens on the ground, regardless of governmental policy, regardless of international policy, regardless of what happens with the UN, this is a challenging question. I know, but like, mm. it is unwavering support for the for the Palestinians. Um, it's unwavering support for an end to the occupation. Right. Mm. So, regardless of um, international um, politics, politics. Well, it depends what you mean by well. that, because. If you're asking about international politics. Will international politics support an end to the occupation? But it's not just not thinking, happening. Yeah, they're not doing anything about it though. So, yeah. like their actions obviously speak louder than words, which is mm. that like they're not actually doing anything about it. So, yeah. given the fact that you know the international community is saying, "Oh, we don't like this stuff happening," but nothing, we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, given the fact that they're doing that, given the fact that UN just sort of like you know every so often say, "Oh, tut tut, step mm. on the wrist, Israel, you should, probably shouldn't bomb Gazan schools." Mm. Given all these things, like mm. how can you not be at least mildly critical of mm. the way of the state of 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 the Palestinian and Israeli conflict at the moment? Mm. Mm. Hmm. Um. That was a lot of question. Where was just that was just like my open pessimism criti criticism coming through. Yeah. I'm. I. I don't know. Like. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I guess, I guess my optimism comes from a place of that when I first got involved, and yeah. in, you know, and into the occupation, which would have been maybe about I don't know, two thousand and eight or something like that. Yeah, you couldn't even really criticize Israel. Like people just weren't okay with it. People just sort of like, hey, look, it's an equal kind of thing. It's two sides to every story, blah blah. Whereas now, people openly say. It is an occupation, and it should end, and it's a bit shit. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of quite exciting for me because. So there are small. And a very yeah, that's right. In a very short space of time, that's that's how much we've kind of gained. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, actually. I think there's a trajectory there, which I think. Yeah, is positive. yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I remember watching when the last the last war last year, mid last year, it was, and just open, open sort of. Um, critique of the Israeli government mm. of course then you had a lot of people saying oh wait you anti-semitic bastard you you know and I was actually going to ask that are you anti-semitic mm. do you do you not like Jews or like what's the go there um I'm a descendant of World War Two refugees so, so I would be so mildly <laughs> I'm a descendant of World War Two refugees who suffered the worst of the Nazi regime so yeah Obviously, totally opposed to any form of anti-Semitism. That is interesting because you, I've, I've been told that it, it, it pops up every so often. Yeah, right? I yeah, mean, of it's course, a complete, yeah. it's a complete farce. But you know, I thought it'd be cheeky and ask it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, it's been really cool talking. Yeah. Um, do you have a song? Do you have a song to end the interview with? What do you mean? You always end with the guest playing a song because it's way more fun. Any song that. of my choice. Any song. You've got approximately five minutes. Nothing, you know. What do you I, I want to? You want me to sing a song? No, not it's. Oh yeah, you can sing a song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're not gonna sing. How are you gonna sing a song for us? <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, no, 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 no. If you got because I always ask uh, guests to, to uh, request a song and then I play it in the show. Okay. Um, 
can I play a song from my old band, or is that a bit? No, you should play a song from your old band. Okay. Okay, what's the name of the band? Dial. Dial. And yeah. what's the name of the song? Um, Always at the Border. Always at the Border by Dial. I tell you what, Tyler's been wonderful. High five. What a great conversation. It was a good combo. Yeah, it was. Yeah. We asked a few. <laughs> my my qu last question was easily the best of the night. Yeah. Um, Dial. What is it? Always at the border. Always at the border. All right. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, and tune in next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.